Hello, everyone. Oh, hello, hey, Jason. Jason. Hey, good to see you there. Good to see isn't you this, there, too. Uh, isn't this very interesting tone-setting music? Very exciting. Hello, Twitch and uh, Cyber listeners. This is Motherboard Editor-in-Chief Jason Kebler. I'm here with Brian Merchant. Hello, Brian. Hello. Hello, Gita. Gita Jackson. Hello. Hi, Tim. Marchman. How's it going? Um, sorry to everyone on Twitch who just heard this, but this is Motherboard Does Dune. It's going to be a series of Twitch streams and podcasts in which we're going to break down all things Dune. That means, I think, the book... The earlier movie, the new movie, video games associated with Dune, Dune lore, the ways that Dune has impacted culture um, and society, the tropes Dune plays on. Um, what else are we talking about, Brian? I have no idea. Yeah, we're going to talk about why this book that was written by Frank Herbert in 1965 has kind of evolved into becoming the cornerstone of not just nerd culture and science fiction, but so much more than that. I mean, mostly through like different uh, franchises like Star Wars that have picked up pieces of Dune and amplified them everywhere. Uh, Dune's footprint is unmistakable and it has you know left not only sort of a certain like aesthetic and the way we think about the future and science fiction um sort of as its legacy but also the themes of like oil and ecology that that are so central to, to to dune um you know, uh, race and eugenics are, uh, unfortunately and problematically like at the center of this project. And so our mysticism and counterculture and all Frank Herbert really tied a lot of this stuff together in a, in this very weird way, you know, as Tim was just saying, he's this weird guy who has problematic politics of his own and a weird story. Uh, but it's, he's really kind of left this huge landmark thing and we're going to, you know, like take episode by episode, like peel the onion and, and see why, why it's endured. Yeah. And so I think one thing to start out with here is the applicability of this almost quote unquote platform he built the way it can be. It's been reinterpreted in the past. You know, the whole star Wars franchise is, is in a lot of ways a rip on Dune and, of the people in the chat, not all of us have seen the movie, but for those of us who have, I think one of the most striking things about it is how modern it feels, how effective it is as you know a series of metaphors, or even a metaphor-generating machine. You have this dried-out planet uh, that is, you know, a, a, a giant climate change metaphor. That's yeah. that's one of the most striking and central things about it, right out of the gate. I mean, I think for me, uh, as a not, I have not yet seen the movie, so I can't speak to what the movie is doing. But it was like impossible that I would not come in contact with Dune in some capacity, even without reading or watching anything related to it. You know, like uh, I when I started playing No Man's Sky, like the big controversy about that game for a long time was that they had sandworms, giant dune sandworms in the trailer, but they're not present in the game. And this week, they finally added a special group mission where you can ride a, a sandworm, right? Some, a lot of the iconography from, from Dune has just been disseminated out into nerd culture in a way that once you actually, once you actually like, interact with what Dune is, a lot of it feels so familiar, but then also you read this narrative and it is like a sweeping Grecian Greek tragedy. It's so operatic. 
on a level that the sort of baseline and basic sort of referential stuff cannot possibly convey to you. It, it will feel wholly original, even though we've like come in contact with so much Dune-esque things by proxy. Yeah. I love that idea of thinking about it at like a platform. It gets, it, I, you know, it, it certainly has become that. And that's, I had no idea that it was showing up in No Man's Sky and yeah. all these other places. It's Ryan, did you put this, you know? Dune, like this giant Dune book behind you uh, for this stream? Did I? Yes, yeah, up there. It's it was, up there. It was, it was supposed to be an Easter egg, Jason, and you just pointed it out right away. It was. Uh, it's we were it's gonna... very conspicuous. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I put one of the later later books there. I think I don't know if it's Tor or someone sent me the sent me the whole set that they reprinted in anticipation of the movie. So I figured I'd uh, do a little product placement. Should we explain like where? Hey. Oh, nice. Should there we explain like where we are in the Dune like fandom? Because you are a gigantic Dune head. That's what they're called, right? Dune heads. Um, whereas I. No Dune Best as like the RTS game that uh, was a forerunner to Command and Conquer. Um, I didn't play it because it was like just before my time. But like I've 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 like avoided Dune very hard. So I'm kind of the like lay person here. Although we saw the movie last night, and so I, I can talk about the movie. Gita's read the book but not seen the movie yet. You've done both. Tim has done both. You've read like the whole like lore and we're hoping to get a, like a, a variety of perspectives here. Um as as a as a book knower and lore knower, I mean, to start off with like did you like the movie? Was the movie good? I liked the movie. I did. I you know, it I I think I'm going to end up having a kind of a complicated relationship to the movie because I one of the things that I thought was that it, you know, it's. I think it was good. It's effective. It's it, like it's epic. The aesthetics are incredibly well done, and I think he did actually do some interesting, like aesthetic, and sort of make make some elements of it his own. You could tell that there was thinking into like sort of the ritual of how the different houses kind of organize, like their reception parties and their ceremonies, and wave the banners, and it kind of had, and the way that he portrayed the religious order. Um, uh, Denis Villeneuve did. It, I thought it was like really. It it was it was cool, and his whole aesthetic is a little portable. I kind of feel like from Arrival to Blade Runner to Dune, um, but I feel like it really works here. Um, he does this sort of like brutalist in Hollywood kind of take, where like it's like huge, expansive uh, scenes and structures and like tiny people kind of like cowering among them and that works when you're talking about sandworms and uh you know a desert planet that is the center of the universe like quite literally um i don't know what did you think tim i absolutely loved it and i think exactly what you're talking about is one of the things i love most about it as i was watching it i kept thinking he is taking stuff that is not at the center of the book and foregrounding um the book is very interior it's very based on the interior lives of the point of view characters it's you know it's very quiet and inward focused even as you know that the whole thrust of the narrative and the scene setting is about this um epic war taking place in an empire that spans ten thousand worlds you know, is, is universal in scope and scale. It's just massive. And he leaves all that 
basically off the page. You're you're aware that you're dealing with high royalty, um, power struggles at the at the heights of power in this intergalactic empire. But you know, you don't necessarily see a lot of that directly, more learn about it in terms of people giving reports about uh, battles taking place slightly off stage. The, you know, the scope and power and grandeur and majesty of it is all very much foregrounded with these giant pieces of brutalist architecture um, with this very detailed aesthetic that really makes you realize you are in a, you know, profoundly alien setting uh, 8,000 years removed from now. Like, in theory, this is the future. This is what we evolve into. Uh, a world where there are no computers, etc. And that's all communicated through, you know, place, scene, setting in ways I found very powerful. Like a lot, Like, a lot of the reviews I've read that have been... Um, less blown away by it than I was have been from people who are who are saying like that's you know the great strength of it is the look and the feel, but uh, you know I don't know if the I don't know if the story is exactly coming across, and I can see that I have no idea how this plays out to somebody who hasn't read the books, yeah. but for me um, having such a defined look and feel really worked and I thought it was like the most fully and meticulously realized space opera setting I've ever seen by a lot. Wow. Yeah. Gita, you haven't seen the movie yet, but like, what are, what are your hopes for the movie? Like it's totally defensible. You've not seen the film yet. It came out like several hours ago. And so we're like, we're going to be doing multiple streams and like Mm -hmm. this one, not everyone's seen the movie yet. Yeah, I wanted to see it first on a big screen because it just feels like too much movie to see in my living room where my cat takes a dump in the middle of me watching movies all the time. I didn't feel like that was conducive for the the best viewing environment for Dune. Um, But I, what I really hope and what really got me excited about this movie, talking to Tim this morning, is like I, what brings me into Dune the narrative is not a lot of the things that I'd heard about Dune from other nerds, like in nerd culture when I was really invested in, like, being a nerd and understanding the nerd canon. You know, I've been hearing about sandworms and fear is the mind killer and all the sort of wacky, uh, you know, psychedelic stuff. But when I started reading the book, what really emotionally grounded me was the romance between Lady Jessica and Duke Leto and, like, the love that they have for their son. And that familial relationship... It's like the best sort of medieval tragedy. Like it really feels like it, the Frank Herbert's following a very classic tragic structure, um, like almost Shakespearean in parts. And I really want to see that reflected. I want I want the Gossip Girl stuff to be <laughs> like really like I, I mean, what is that like Baron Harkonnen but like a Gossip Girl villain? He's basically <laughs> Chuck Bass's dad. Like. Um, like a grossly pedophilic homosexual Chuck Bass's dad. Uh, so I, exactly. I mean, that feels like a very Bass move to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's essentially like Blair Waldorf has the voice, uh, is is the real story of, of Dune. And what I'm hearing is like the political struggles and the interpersonal 
the politics of the story are given room to breathe, as well as the action sequences that everyone really likes and is invested in. Yeah. So while the story can't get away from some of the like grosser elements of the narrative, especially just like this really is just like the video game Detroit Become Human asked, what if racism was real? The Dune asks, what if Arabs were real? So it's, <laughs> it's just like it can't get away from that. But at least the good stuff is hopefully what I'm hearing is the good stuff is highlighted and pushed to the forefront and given a highlight that previous adaptations have not necessarily given it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think that is its strengths. I do feel like that what you're talking about is still kind of like just like everybody's critique of the of the Lynch film was that it so, like the interpersonal stuff, those like smaller moments in the interiority that Tim was talking about earlier is kind of absent. It's just, it is. It's just like hitting the big plot points, and I feel like that's the case this time again. But the grandeur's just dialed up to eleven, so mm-hmm. it, it, it's 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 okay. I, I'm curious, Jason, because you hadn't read the books, uh, and Tim was one. So I want to talk, but Edward and Mickey are here and I need to do some rejiggering with the stream itself. So everyone can still hear us, but why don't you introduce our guests and I'm going to work on getting them on screen and and you just keep going. We'll come back. Okay. It looks like we have Ed here, Ed Angueso Jr. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Ed. Uh, Fellow, fellow, fellow Dune head, I think. Um, If I've uh, interpreted yeah. your when being invited yeah. to this podcast, just immediately what he said was, "Bet I could talk about this all day, every day." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then we're going to be bringing on uh, Mickey Kendall, who has uh, who's the author of uh, Hood Feminism, uh, among other works and she had some really insightful stuff to say about sort of these sometimes underlying sometimes very in your front uh themes that run through doing the book especially uh the sort of eugenic eugenics program that actually gives rise to paul and sort of propels the narrative um i was actually surprised that it showed up as centrally as it did in the in the movie because i'd heard that they were going to kind of wash it away but there's a whole section where they kind of lay it out pretty explicitly um between the 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 bene Gesserit and the um and jessica they kind of say like well we did eugenics and that's how we came here um and here's he and he's ready ready for white saviorhood uh but but it was it but it was fairly prominent and, and and mickey's had a lot to say about that so are you are you ready to join us here Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I also weirdly read the prequels and some of the other books before I gave up on the eugenics program, so I have opinions. So just be like, the soapbox is talking. Stop it if you need to. Okay. Well, I think, I, you know, one of the reasons that, yeah, we wanted to, we were so eager to, to bring you on and to talk about this is because uh, we, I, I beheld that, that's, that soapbox. So please, by all means, uh, have you, did you see the film? We should ask for I watched most of the film. Yes. Is in my opinion, pacing wise, it's a lot of it's a lot of time. It's a lot of pretty shots. Lots lots of pretty shots. I'm gonna Aretha Franklin this about the movie, the new movie. It's a lot gowns, of beautiful gowns. Oh, yes, like <laughs> I learned that Zendaya can in fact act, and so can Jason Momoa and mm-hmm. um, other people. And then some people are um, wallpaper paced. So <laughs> I didn't think Jason Momoa was very good, actually. Like, I, I thought most of the performances were very good. I thought Jason Momoa was just okay. Um, 
but Zendaya was amazing, and I think everyone wants more of her, and there will be more of her in the next uh, next film, seemingly. I mean, well, I'll put it this way. Jason Momoa did Jason Momoa in Dune. I get that. At least Jason Momoa had facial expressions. And I yeah. started to feel... I've forgotten the actress's name for the 37th time. Um, the actress playing Lady Jessica does not have facial expressions. Rebecca Ferguson. I actually slightly disagree with you here. One of the things, as a book reader, <laughs> that I thought was really interesting was that in the books, the Quetzal, the Quetzal Haderach, the, you know, the, the prophesied figure of destiny, the Messiah, whom Timothée Chalamet is playing, Paul Trades, is very concretely portrayed as someone who transcends not only space and time, but gender. He is the only man in the universe who can do this thing that this order of women who have been plotting a eugenics program for thousands of years uh, can do. And there's never really a lore dump where that's exactly explained. He is positioned as, though, the heir of, of his mother's weird witching ways, her, her sorcery, and also as the heir of uh, his father's court. His father is a duke. He's surrounded by military tacticians and strategists. He's very concretely presented as... That has uh, really nothing to do with the lack of facial expressions of the actress. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. And I agree about the lack of facial expressions, but I do think that by the, by the end, by the time where he's coming into his own, we see him That's as... That's still about him. Lady Jessica mm-hmm. in the books is a character in her own right and has her own story. One and of the biggest not- weaknesses in the movie, I think. Yeah, she's not portraying any of the emotions or grief or things that she feels, which is part of what makes you care about her raising Paul. Yeah, yeah. and that is like like very much the grounding emotional core of the book for me yes. reading it is Lady Jessica's deep, like soul-encompassing love for Paul. It's, mm-hmm. you know, she's completely consumed by her desire to see him survive and and thrive and be the chosen one as she suspects that he is. Yeah, and, um... You know, the, think- the only other thing I've seen um, Rebecca Ferguson in is the bizarre film adaptation of Doctor Sleep, where she really does act way too much in that movie. Like, some no one told her to cool it down. So it's interesting that here that she is gotten gone the completely opposite direction, where it's uh, maybe I don't know. This is a movie where she could have done. Like, listen, Lady Jessica eating the scenery is one of the best parts of the David Lynch version. Yes, right? yes, I like, agree. I think that I no... think actually, this is one of the few things that like Lady Jessica was way better in the in the in the in the Lynch version. Like, she does. I feel like I agree with you completely. Except she does like have one mode, and that's to like quiver outside a doorway. You know, when she's yeah. upset, like she just was like, oh no. There's no badass in this Lady Jessica. <laughs> There's no yeah. like deep abiding love. There's quivering. Yeah, like I agree. I miss, I miss the quiver lip before she steals herself to fuck somebody up. Version yep. of Lady Jessica. Yep. Yep. It, it yeah. It's also interesting What's... that they like took out that thread for her because that also in the books is like one of the really important, I think, kind of tragic things where it's like her love, 
her son is still not enough to save him from his destiny, mm-hmm. which he still rushes towards. And it's like a really horrible one that he's convinced he has to go down so that he can avenge his father, or like, you know, save the Fremen. But it just it kills or it's I mean, as he as he you know envisions or as he has uh, visions warning about. Right. At least the destruction of, you know, countless worlds across the universe if he goes down that path. Well, and, it, and I wonder why they took it out, like especially when that's. It feels like that would be the center of the next. She gets like end. she gets it for like one scene, right? When she mm-hmm. when we finally see her use the voice in the helicopter, and it's like I think it speaks to how underdeveloped it had been throughout the rest of the movie because you're you're like where the where the hell it did, did that feel come like from? it came out of she, nowhere, yeah. Like she's a bad. It's like she's a badass because she had she had gone from like the the quivering, worrying, you know, to. Like to 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 come in, in complete control, kind of you know, being right. the, and you like, know master. Or yeah. A central part of the story for the books is that this didn't have to happen mm-hmm. if she had followed the Bene Gesserit plan and given Duke Leto a daughter, could have been married off to the Harkonnens, and still attempted the Kwisatz Haderach thing by having Paul, because she doesn't have Paul just in pursuit of the Kwisatz Haderach stage for him. It's literally because the Duke in the books loses a son before Paul and she is giving him this this second child, this second son. Which is the thing that's dropped is is not only that, but also the uh, suspicion towards her. Like a major, major plot line in the books is that they drop the fact that people don't trust her. Um, that the, she is yeah. viewed as the betrayer who set her right. whole family up to be killed. Right, yeah. and then the actress that plays uh, the Bene Gesserit that comes to visit, again, we're back to the very restrained choices. You don't get as much of the tension. And this is, although, also weirdly, when they're talking about the eugenics in that scene, one of the reasons that I was like, well, this movie happened, it it aired, beautiful gowns, um, is because you don't get the feeling that there is fear. There is anguish. She's outside saying the Bene Gesserit prayer, right? But, like, the delivery of that prayer is not great. The delivery in the room. We don't even get Paul thinking the prayer, which is one of the things that yeah, is so sort of integral to that, that scene. Yeah. Yeah. If his mother's outside saying it, but in the original version and in the book, Paul thinks that. That's how Paul gets through the Gam Jabbar. Yes, I have spent too much time in Dune World Landia before I gave up on it. Okay, okay. I, have- <laughs> no, I think you also are- don't get the love between the Lady Jessica and the Duke that Gita was just talking about as one of the central emotional cores of it. It's it's kind of there's a there's a throwaway scene where uh, where Leto says I should have married you, and that's yeah basically oh. all we all we get out of that, which is. Which, is a big mess. Which we also don't really get the explanation of why he doesn't marry her. Which is because people mistrust and he mistrusts the Bene Gesserit. Well, and that's what I was going to say because I think I'm the only one on this call who hasn't read the book. Um, so I went in cold yesterday and frankly, I, uh, Tim had this question. He was like, how much of it did you understand Like, as someone who didn't read the book? And uh, not a whole lot. Like I, I eventually was able to to get the general thrust of the story, and I've seen a lot of science fiction, read a lot of science fiction, but somehow missed Dune. And when when she says I should have married you, and then later they kind of mention that she's the Duke's concubine, I was like, I thought they were married the whole time. Like that never came up at all. It seemed like they were like a happy family. 
uh, more Wait. or less. And like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I didn't the even get that. Of this movie deletes a lot of context, including the fact that there is an actual conversation where it comes up prior to him saying, I should have married you. Um, that it just sort of throw out the window. Right. Right. Yeah. There's and then for reason, um, for, for me, like another thing that finally convinced me to actually read Dune um, was this idea that, you know, apoc- it's almost definitely apocryphal, but there are some very similar, you know, very obvious similarities between the Jedi and the Bene Gesserit Order. And I am like a, 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 a Clone Wars person, you know, like Anakin Skywalker's legacy of uh, how the Jedi ruined his fucking life is one of my favorite, like, weird narratives in fiction. That is a poor little boy that didn't even have to be Darth Vader if the Jedi had just let him stay with his mom. And I w- was very interested in seeing the Bene Gesserit portrayed on screen because they really are just like, what if the Jedi were what they say they are? Which is a really like a repressive sect that is devoted to order in such a way that they determine the lives of everyone that belongs to them. And I feel like the context of then that makes them not lauded as heroes like the Jedi are, but treated as people to be suspicious of is like a very interesting setup. So uh, I'm, I'm very curious about how I'm going to feel about this movie <laughs> at this point. And also I'm sure suspicious, <laughs> everyone is suspicious of them, but like still integrates them deeply into their courts. They're still at the core of political power and embedded in every single court and the emperor's court, mm-hmm. even though everyone knows that they have some other plan. Right. And that and it like is the- contrary to everyone else's. The whole thing with that is sort of woven in in this way where um, Lady Jessica being a Bene Gesserit, most of the women of the houses, of the grand houses, are Bene Gesserits, which is how the Bene Gesserits get all of this access, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a weird tenet of the misogyny of the Dune narrative and the eugenics sort of subplot is part of the misogyny um, that we then see women have power that is wielded in secret. Like it's ten thousand one thirty one or whatever the f. If these women are able to do all of this, why are they still letting these men breathe? Right. Right. Uh, and and why is their project to produce a man who can then take the power right. away from them or can well, like, be there? That's right. also something that in the later books it ends up manifesting in the in a very different way, which I feel like they'll probably never. Get there with the honored right. matres, right? You know, well, like I don't even know if they're going to get to the face dancers or any of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> the second book, <laughs> right? right. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm... Anyone listening to this who was like, "What the f are you all talking about now?" I am sorry. There are a million Dune books, yeah, prequels and sequels, and um, I th- I'm just sorry. I it gets I think just some of the ones that were like, written by Frank Herbert. And, Oh yeah, there's yeah, there are only six <laughs> Dune books and right. Yeah, and I think the the important thing to know, I think, in the context of all the conversations we're going to be having, is just is that the 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 first Dune book is really the only one that really like really kind of adheres to this classical like you know pop sci-fi model that we know with Hero's Journey, where he ends up vanquishing the Emperor. I mean, pretty the second book is all about how I guess spoiler alert, uh, it he curdles under power and he becomes like this ruthless horrible uh dictator and then that is where 
any of the sort of the buildup or any of the interesting stuff that Frank Herbert might have been trying to do happens. But he kind of it's like I don't know if it's intentional or what that it but it was a stroke of certainly fortune for him that he contained that more, you know, palatable narrative arc in the just the first one. So like if if he's trying to comment on how this whole system is sucks, uh, then it, it that re- that critique is not really realized as much when you know Paul, uh, you know, uh, eventually right. just emerges victorious, right? I think the the, the overwhelming narrative is supposed to be absolute power corrupts absolutely because by the time you get to like God Emperor of Doom, which is one of the later books, um, I mean you become a giant man worm creature, yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't really have an answer for God Emperor of Doom. I would love I to. That's my favorite one. The question was, what was he smoking? So I can yeah. never smoke it. It's also, it's also yeah. one of the yeah. problems inherently with trying to adapt this into a film, right? It's like, if you've read the totality of the books, we're basically starting with the Star Wars prequels. We're starting with how Darth Vader became Darth Vader and how uh, he gave birth to and raised the greatest tyrant in human history. Like, a, a, a literal... Genocidaire on a on a uh, hitherto oh. unimagined scale. In a and also, fucking... you sort of see if you read the prequel books that his son wrote based off the stuff that uh, had been sketched out. That basically humanity's narrative is to always end up oppressed, which doesn't. It's mm-hmm. not the most exciting thing, right? Like, yeah. No, and it's of... also part of the part of the thing i was thinking watching the movies was if if you have read this you know if you have read all these books you see where it's going you know you see a lot of the tragedy i don't know if you really we see paul atreides having these visions of you know interstellar whole interstellar holy war people murdering his name he's weeping thinking about it you know they're they're killing other people in in my name and my father's name I don't know if you really buy that, thinking that the hero of a big $200 million Hollywood movie is going to become this horrible tyrant. But if you have read this stuff, you know, oh, it's way worse than that. Like, I his, think that's why it's good that visions are understating how bad things are going to get. I think this is why this is a trilogy based off the first book. I don't think you could sell... No, you couldn't sell God Emperor of Dune on any one screen, right? Yeah. There's a bunch yeah. of others you also couldn't sell. I wonder. So. I really I want to see if they can. Yeah, I mean, I'm so curious. Like, if this, what do, what do they do if Dune if Dune Part One Part Two is super successful? Do they completely deviate from the books under studio pressure to to like? Because people would just be so mad. I feel like yeah. I was so. I mean, you I was had... mad. Sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. When I read the books, when I was like 12 years old, the first book, I started Dune Messiah and I was so mad. I was like, what? I didn't finish it. I was so mad that he would like betray Paul because, yeah, you know, I'm a, a just a 12 year old white boy, like going yeah. like, ah, oh, my hero, he did all this. Yay. And then it's like, wait, no, I don't. Mm-mm. No, I put it down and I didn't return to the books for like 10 years. Yeah. Uh, sorry. No, I'm just, I've been very, you know. yeah. I'm very curious about how sort of the young sort of teenage stan set of of fans for Zendaya and Timothy Chalamet are going to react to this and any later Dune 
movies, you know, I looked on AO3 uh, Archive of Our Own this morning, and there are 23 fics in uh, the Dune 2020 category that ship Paul Atreides and Duncan Idaho. The second most popular ship is Duke Leto and you, the reader. Um, It just feels like there is like a really horny contingent that is really ready specifically to see like the tragic room, you know, the beautiful romance between uh, Paul Atreides and Zendaya's character Chani, but uh, I, the, that that does not really culminate in the narrative in anything good <laughs> at yeah. all. And, and to loop us back to our core subject here, um, we're talking about a eugenics program that results in mass genocide. Like that is fundamentally right. I was going to say driver. this is the other thing. <laughs> it doesn't not only do I get the great love story, but because of the eugenics program. That love story is deliberately sabotaged as they attempt to continue to manipulate him, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we have this eugenics program to lead to this man to control everything, and we hate that. Now, how do we fix it? Sort of underpinning. Yeah, and I'm like, maybe Mickey. maybe you all aren't the ones that can fix it because you broke it in the first place. For, yeah, for the- and also, oh, I was Go gonna ahead, say, everyone. also, there's like, um, you know, the fit the here the eugenics program and then the subversion by Jessica and the birth of Paul and then him trying to create um, the stronghold on Arrakis leads to that genocide, which then leads to him, you know, curdling under power, retreating from it. And then that second uh, genocide that happens when his son takes power. Right. And it very much is like, okay, I think like there's, there's maybe some part of it where Herbert might've, or someone could probably look at it and say, oh, well, like the eugenics program would have gone well if not for the subversion. But also it's like it always, every time, there are like multiple eugenics programs in the series and every single one of them results in a massive genocide, a massive dictatorship, a massive like tyrannical. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Regime, right? Which I think is good. Yeah, right, exactly, because... There are points where I would I read it and worried that like they would it was gonna come off as like all right this time we got it. <laughs> you know? we did eugenics right this time. Horrible. Yeah, I mean horrible. <laughs> so so real quick just to interject, I think in case anybody's gotten lost and maybe Mickey you can take this here because I feel like we should just like define the terms for a second. Like what is what is this eugenics program we're talking about? Like where oh. does it where is it rooted? Like what is what is Herbert ta- uh, talking about? Like you know uh, that. What 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 is what is the Bene Gesserit order and you know what, right. what what's going on here? So as a prequel, the Bene Gesserit order are rooted in a prior eugenics program um, because there's a lot of Bene, there's a lot of back history here that he keeps referring to when he talks about the War of the Machines and some other stuff, right? So they decide that smart machines can't be trusted and that they have to breed people to do the things smart machines can do. So it's not just Paul that's a result of eugenics. The navigators of the ships, a lot of things 
are absolutely results of eugenics programs. There's even a scene in the movie when the Bene Gesserit comes to talk to the Harkonnens and you see a creature scuttling around who is a result of a different form of eugenics program used for torture and punishment. Like, it's gross. A lot of the Harkonnens, Harkonnens stuff is really gross. Damn, I thought that was but just a spider. Bene- <laughs> no, it's absolutely <laughs> It's, it's like human beings. I see. It's, it, human centipede kind of weirdness. You yeah, don't really want to know it from. Right. Um, but so the whole thing, the mint hats are results of a different eugenics program. Even Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck are in part sort of a byblow of eugenics stuff. And what has happened is that they've created a society literally sort of based on the idea that eugenics can give them the humans who can do the things they need to have done. As a result of this, the Bene Gesserit, meanwhile, there is a place in this consciousness achieved through Spice where they keep saying women cannot go, but when men attempt to go there, the men die. They die screaming, they die turned inside out, they die horribly. Side note, a lot of Dune is really gross. Bene Gesserit are determined to create and control this person who they believe will arise naturally regardless, and they've winnowed through all these bloodlines. By way of collecting, by sending women to sleep with the various men, which is how you get Lady Jessica and others, um, both to put women in places of power, women who are loyal to the Bene Gesserit, but also to collect DNA from men who might otherwise end up dead because they do dumb things like have wars all the time, right? And there's like a subplot with the, the Baron Harkonnen and why he's floating around that is essentially the result of him raping a Bene Gesserit and she lets him do the assault because they need his DNA but also once they have his DNA they don't need him so she poisons him basically as her version of revenge in the moment because part of the weirdness of this is that the Bene Gesserit program yields women who can choose when they're going to be fertile who can control what sort of daughters they what sort of what the gender of their children are all of these things right they're able to manipulate their bodies internally which is part of the Bene Gesserit sorcery that they keep referring to. So it's high biomedical science controlled by your mind. That sounds even weirder as I say it out loud. <laughs> it's very weird. And it's also like one of the things that is not touched on in the movie, which I, I think if I were you know, writing a screenplay of this, I also would have dropped this. But that as you're talking about Every sort of weird order you see in it is absolutely the result of the abolition of computers. Like the this is on some level this is not sorcery, this is science. That you know, these women have evolved to the point where they're able to control biochemical reactions in their own body to get the results they want the same way they would be presumably able to with, you know, eight thousand years in the future advanced computer technology supposed to be a side effect of a planet or something like the, the you can tell the point at which frank herbert had not figured out his own science and his world building a lot of yeah. my fascination with dune is that dune is the most complete and complete world building i've ever seen <laughs> like he had a plan but also he had the kind of plan that happens when you know you want to get to d and you're going to figure out B and C later. Yeah. So yeah. we have a question. We have a question in the chat that I think touches on this. Um, it comes from Flo Taro. They say, I'm curious how much of this stuff was in the text of the originals. I understand the prequels were written at least with some refer- reference notes from Frank. 
But the fact that they were written after all of the core books doesn't really leave me interested in incorporating them with the other texts. I think oh. everything we just said is is like from him canon, right? Yeah, but Larry and Jihad. He makes references. Yeah. yeah, he talks he about the history, yeah. Yeah, he makes references to all of this stuff later as though you, as, you the reader, will know when you're reading the books the stuff he intended to put in these prequels. Because it feels like the prequels were written based off the notes because he had mapped it out but hadn't figured out the characters yeah. to go with these plot points. Right, right. It's like a Cimmerillion thing with no Cimmerillion, right? Right. Right. As so, far as we know. So I'm curious, like this, I mean, Frank Herbert has notoriously what we would call now very bad politics. Like what does like the fact that he spent so much time sort of devising this eugenics program and the, fa- the fact that like, I, you know, I don't know if it's specified in the books uh, ever, but like in all the film and TV adaptations, like the products of these eugenic programs are like, like, su- like white super people. Um, like what, what are like, what are the, what's the context there with, with, with Frank Mickey, with, with Frank Herbert oh. and, and sort of like what he's, yeah. Well, Frank Herbert is, he's racist, but in the, the weirdest way possible. I'm about to explain this. And again, I'm going to sound nuts because Frank Herbert categorically probably nuts. so. Um, yeah. <laughs> he was very fixated on Asians, um, some North Africans. There were versions of some of his writings I've seen where apparently some Africans, but not other Africans. It was skin color, but also class. And also he was a huge misogynist. And I suspect um, his sexual attractions played a role in how some of the women were written and like his weird fixations that will come up later. I'm so sorry. So much of this is phallic and I feel like I'm explaining the wrong things. Um, but Frank Herbert, I think actually hated most people and he liked the concept of powerful white men and some other powerful people. He didn't necessarily like Christians, um, which is part of this. There's a whole point where he fuses Buddhism and Islam in order to create some of the religious stuff that you will see. It's like he cherry-picked his bigotry, right? Mm-hmm. And then he pastiched his various bigotries together, I suspect, based off people he'd met or drugs he'd done. Yeah. Because, again, drugs are a huge part of this and who he was doing them with. To create this world in which nobody would be darker than a certain color. Like, Frank Herbert definitely operated in a very paper bag test kind of reality. Yes. Right? But North Africans... This section that interacted with people from that section mm-hmm. seemed to be the cultures he liked, mm-hmm. with chunks taken from elsewhere further in Africa. And then he also sort of overlays this story for the Fremen, which you don't get to see, I think, in the movie, but it's in the books, that is a lot like the story of the transatlantic slave trade, right? But with different appearing people. Yeah, a lot of the Jesuit stuff is sort of lifted, kind of from the idea. Um, Bene Jesuit and the Navigators Guild are sort of a mix of like orphan train, mail order bridey kind of things meets what if those women had power? Yeah, and like this. The fascinating part here is that none of this should work. Right? Yeah, it's like racism by a genius who was also an idiot and high. 
Yes. <laughs> yes, it's like a Batman villain wrote this book somehow. <laughs> like, yes. just dosed with the scarecrow gas and, like, I'm afraid of all minorities. <laughs> like, only, only some of them and only sometimes and only in some ways because I also yeah. don't trust. He also didn't, from his reading, I don't, from reading his stuff, I don't think he actually trusted white people doing things correctly either like there was yeah. some category of class breakdown because if you read the stuff about the war with the machines I hate to break this to every Silicon Valley dude bro pursuing <laughs> AI he hates all of you Yeah, for hero Frank Herbert you are literally the thing he positions as a nightmare and the dumbest people in the universe as part of the setup for this world where everything is based on biology right yeah. people creating and, AI are like the ultimate yeah. villains right yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, it's when hearing you lay it out like this, it really makes me like part of the legacy of Dune is the way that white authors do play with different cultures in this way. You still see it in a lot of like operatic science fiction where they just go, well, I like this part of Indian culture and I like this part of like Chinese culture and I'll just claim it as my own. But I'm being respectful because I've done my research. Right. Right. And there's like what you feel when you read Dune is like this is a fully like, research, like complete world. But you also sense the absence of like anything authentic or genuine. It shows you how delicate it is to play with culture in this way and how necessary it is to actually let people from those cultures tell their own stories. Well, and I would say on top of letting people from those cultures tell their own story, um, I am not sure the research component is any better than the research component he did, which appears to be, I looked at some pictures and I have some racism that is sort of what I think of that culture. Yep. When I I say that it's like an idiot genius, the reason I say that is because in some ways the success of Dune, the actual original book, it's a fluke. He literally cannot write like this for the entire rest of the series. This is one of the most depressing and most difficult reads outside of this one book anything and even if you think you're gonna slog through i promise there is a point in one of the books where you're like does he know (laughs) it's i mean the thing about frank herbert is that he he's this absolutely inscrutable character he's actually i mean and we'll we'll get to more of this throughout uh the the many talks we're going to be having about dune over the next uh week or so but you know it's not even limited to that he was like a horrible homophobe as well his own son was was gay and he never accepted him he but he also did have this like real affinity to uh, the to indigenous people, it was. I mean, it, no doubt that it was like this weird white. Like he pictured himself as this as this kind of semi savior figure. But one of the most interesting footnotes to me about Dune is that he got a lot of the ideas from this. But there's the local tribe where he was growing up in Washington State, which had faced a lot of sort of strife and oppression at, at the hands of the of the government, and he kind of sympathized with them. And he his next book after Dune wasn't the sequel to. Dune. Dune. It was this novel about uh, about uh, about an indigenous tribe, basically called Soulcatcher, where he like spent time trying to do this research. He really tried to insert himself in there, and it's so problematic and it's so crazy. But everybody's saying like, "You've just written this crazy book about Dune. All we want is the sequel to this." And he's saying, "No, no, I'm going to do this." So he did feel this weird, skewed like affinity to trying to to serve something else. But th- it's so inexplicable to me that his politics throughout his entire life, like he's a tax dodger, he's a Reagan Republican, like. 
like he is like you know he's like he said he's obviously misogynist and and, and different shades of racist um but it is yeah it, it i don't know how he himself ever squared all of this stuff i think if you think of it as him having fetishes it all makes way more sense that a lot of the things that we see are really a person who has a fetish for a particular appearance right the women are often written to look specific ways um the ways that they are then brutalized for not wanting the white guy or whatever is often very specific a lot of weird fetish culture stuff is also sort of bleeding in right like that's part of the whole thing with the still suits and some other stuff like yes great idea but also kind of looks like bdsm attire in a lot of his work yeah. Um, a he's lot. a big fan <laughs> of the and the chains and the torture. Yeah, so, a lot of the Bene stuff is about right. control and dominance, and that starts to feel very sexual very quickly. Yeah, no. in the last two books, there's literally a group of Bene Gesserit who their power, part of their power is they use sex to control and, and they essentially enslave them and use them to infiltrate galactic civilization and the empire so that they can bring it down and that's like that's like the existential quite the second existential crisis so much science fiction where it's like by reading this i feel like i've learned a lot more about you than i'd like <laughs> <Yeah>. to know <laughs> this, and june is the ultimate not only yes. is it like do i know more from than i want to know about you from reading it but the way people talk about dune will sometimes yield to you things you didn't really want to know about them. Because, like, there's a certain subculture of women in sci-fi who you know if this guy really likes Dune, right? If he's really into it, you want to turn around and just walk the other way. It's like the five yeah. laws of power. <laughs> yeah. You just are like, yeah, I like nerds. I love nerds. Oh, you've read every single Dune book and God Emperor is your favorite? <laughs> Ed, I feel like Ed. I it's feel like most, you should respond to that, Ed. It's the most insane one. Yeah. It's like the one where it goes clearly off the rails, and he's like, "I'm batshit. I'm just gonna commit." You know, <laughs> there are a lot. A lot of authors, I think, will try to hide it and pretend like, "No, this is this ve- something very complex and serious going on." He's like, "No, this guy, the uh, the son is a worm for four thousand years." <laughs> <laughs> no, he's actually he's gonna rule. The, he's gonna free the plot of that is it's it's like he yeah I'm gonna free humanity by being a worm for four thousand years and then becoming the all the remaining worms yeah yeah that's what I'm that's, always doing honestly yeah exactly I'm yeah. doing that every day also fascinating in terms of cinematic adaptations in that you know every version of this there's the Lynch version there's the science fiction channel version. There's our new version. Every one of them conceptualizes the still suits as BDSM gear, black, you know, tight leather where, you know, anyone who's ever been out on a hot day knows they'd be white. There's no particular reason for this to look like something you'd run into in a dungeon. This is clearly an accurate adaptation of what Herbert had in mind for whatever reason. Um, that's trickling down to everybody who's adapting his work when it makes absolutely no sense. Like, this yeah. gear should be light-colored yeah. just to reflect the sun. Like, again, you know, this is Herbert imagining what, what Arabs would be like if they were real. Like, we know what people wear in the desert. <laughs> we already know. Yeah. Right. So wh- one thing I wanted to, wanted to bring up is that one of the things that we, we do get at the end of the movie um, 
Uh, Mickey, I don't know if you made it that far in the, but we do finally meet the the Freeman and the um, the Fremen and in, in the at the second half or last third of the film, and it seems to me that like they're the only like sort of like racial requirement of being a Fremen is that you're just like not white. They like they, there's like Javier Bardem and there's like it's just it's like it, it seems like they the casting director like clearly just made like it was just like okay. Not and it seemed in this era where people are allegedly so sensitive about portraying like white savior narratives. What did we make of of that of that moment when and I know you've seen the film um, to that to that point uh, oh. where it's just like the Fremen are just basically the other. It's how I read it. Well, the a the Fremen are basically the other in the books, right? Mm-hmm. Which is already a problem. Like they are part of this group. They're literally called the Buddhism. Like, it's B-U-D-D-I-S-L-A-M. Like, that's the spelling. Like, when we talk about how this is not. Like, and this is to Arrakis. Like, and then they, they have the sieges and they're trying to bring water to Arrakis and all of this stuff, right? Like, there's a whole lot of backstory. I'm, I'm skimming over here. But basically, at, he actually, in the book, if I remember correctly, makes a big deal about Chani's color versus Princess Irulan's color. Because Princess Irulan is bright and white and crisp, and Chani is this exotic sort of brown. And this is what Paul wants, and they have no one else can believe this is what he wants, because look at how cultured Irulan is, whatever. Because all of the Bene Gesserit at some point, all of the senior Bene Gesserit anyway, become whiter in the in the Dune universe, Um across time, even though theoretically they should have been from all backgrounds. Right. Uh, lots of questions about about that. And I think really what we're seeing is that this is supposed to be kind of a white savior fantasy, um, but one in which the white savior has to make sacrifices of his own humanity, his own kind, whatever, in order to become part of this culture. Mm-hmm. But then all he brings with him is death and ruin, which made me wonder deeply what went on with Herbert's alleged closeness with a local uh, group and what was said to him in the process of him trying to write that other book. Because he's only a hero. Paul is only a hero to the Fremen for like five minutes. It's part of what makes the way this is presented in the movie to me a little hard to judge. Because if you go all in, if you make nine Dune movies and you go all the way with what's in the books that, that we were talking about earlier. Um, Paul is ultimately presented as this hideous demonic monster who is, who is, you know, not a savior at all. He's, he's, he's no kind of Messiah. Um, if you tell that whole story, this reads very differently than if we do a neat and tidy, uh, kind of adaptation of the first book that ends up with, uh, you know, him raising the Atreides flag, uh, you know, defeating his enemies and standing with an army of the other at his back, ready to do his bidding. Like, yeah. do we take that next step past what happens there and, and talk about the logical consequences of all, of all this, which the books to their credit do, or do we leave it there? Um, I mean, I think one of the reasons Lynch and others have left it there is because the pivot is so sharp. And it is not... Honestly, the rest of the Dune story is not particularly enjoyable if you're a fan of Paul's or of Lady Jessica or of um, Aaliyah. Like, you lose 
and I don't think they get this in this movie, but you lose all of the people relatively quickly in the narrative of the story. The mm-hmm. first book sets you up to support. They're all gone, right? The villains are gone. The whole thing is gone. Like, this is a snapshot of this universe, but the rest of this universe sucks. And also sort of missing is the fact that this universe sucks over and over, right? Like, the other part of the story that Dune, the Dune world seems to tell is that whether it is humans with machines or humans with manipulated humans or just humans by themselves, humans are their own worst enemy. I don't know if that makes for a very good movie franchise. Well, do you think, yeah, how did, you think they of... told Jason Momoa he's going to be the main character in like five of them? Four of them? He's, he's, the, he's, he's the main guy in a few, or well, not the main guy, but he's you know he keeps coming, he comes back in almost every single yeah. one, right, in one way or another. It's just you but know how much on, of right? WB's money is 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 Villeneuve gonna get, right? That's the really yeah. the the question here. And it was a huge surprise to me that this movie came out on a streaming service the same night it was released in theaters. So I I'm. I'm curious about how the culture overall is going to react to this because any more dude movies depends on people liking the story of Paul Atreides' rise to power, and most of these people have not read Dune or the Dune right. sequel. Well, as someone who has not read Dune and watched the movie yesterday, I was like, this is fucking sick. Like, this is very, very good. Like, it just the, the atmosphere and the world building, and, like, I, I couldn't follow some of the narrative for a bit. It made me want to read Dune, and, and now you're all making me not want to read Dune. Um, <laughs> just go, read Dune. Just read, I'll read the first one, yeah. Um, but, I mean, first I, one, yeah. really just avoid, just avoid God Emperor of Dune, because I don't want you telling people I would I disagree. I would say it. everyone should let it poison your mind. Just go for it. It's in, it's the most insane book you'll read. Where, but I mean, where, I watched where? the film and I thought, yeah, I just thought like this is our worm. next blockbuster series. Like, I mean, he's obviously like angling for that to be the case, but I mean, I bought it. Like, I bought it as a, someone new to this series. Like, I, I want right? a second and third. Film. Like, so far, like the receipts are showing that. Yeah, the I think like so far like. It's like last night alone was more than like the pre-pandemic opening for Blade Runner, and it's doing well overseas. I personally, of course, as someone who has read all this stuff, of course, I want Warner or whoever to put billions behind just making a dozen of these movies and taking it all the way to its inexorable ending. And you know, I don't know if if the business logic will work out that way, but one of the cool things about it to me was. Um, the contrast between this and Star Wars specifically, among other kind of cinematic universes that have worked with a lot of Dune material, one of the things I thought was really cool was that Paul's vision of the future were presented as terrifying. Benny Gesserit Tower was presented as, as terrifying, as un- unknowable. See, that just leads into the misogyny. That just literally leans into women are evil and can't be trusted as like a cultural messaging that I don't think we necessarily need more of on the big screen. Okay. How I'm, I'm curious. Cause I don't even disagree with that. I was just talking in terms of the effects, like presenting it as something that is fundamentally different from everyday experience. Is there a different way you think that should be presented? I think that the source material is so, immersed in racism and eugenics and misogyny that there's and, and homophobia because you do mm-hmm. get 
to his issues with homosexual sex later when we get to the face dancers and the gola. No one that has not read the books will know this, but when you get there, you're <laughs> like, oh, this isn't good either. This is also bad, right? Um, so much of Frank Herbert's work is just, you had something for a second. Let's what, never let yeah. you speak again. What what yeah. kept you interested for so long, Mickey? Like, well, you've read all the books. You uh, like you have some, um, some affinity. Point, yeah, at one point, I just wanted to know. I am a completionist, even of bad things, though. I am a person, I will start a series. And very few series do I not finish once I've started them. Um, because I just want to know where you're going. And I couldn't understand the sudden pivot. And I, for a while there, I was convinced, much like Star Wars, that there was going to be a point. Then I realized that there was not, in fact, a point. And that the, <laughs> I realized that I got in for Dune. Uh, but I also had I read Dune really young and had kind of forgotten how much I didn't like the next book by the time the prequels came out. But then I launch on this whole thing where I'm going to go back and read, you know, from start to finish as an adult. Um, don't ask me why, but I had a job that was boring, so we're going to assume that that was yep. really my underpinning logic. And the prequels, his kid writes better than him. His kid does write, I, I would argue, better books than him um, in terms of character development and seeing women as people. However, once you get past this first book in the Dune series and you start reading the others, like the messaging is very interesting. But also Herbert's ability to world build starts to just sort of collapse under the power of his own fame, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, mm-hmm. right? Also, they get darker and more depressing. Um, I don't know if he was going through things or whatever. Um, God Emperor is, in fact, the Dune book where I was like, this is just, why am I here? Why am I still doing this to myself? I feel like so, someone... I- I feel like someone in this chat will know this. I'm under the impression that at least some of the later books were written under tax pressure. Like he'd been dodging his taxes and he had to write these books. I have heard that and I was never sure if that was true or not, that he wrote them because of debt. Because God Emperor, Mm -hmm. at least the first half, and I can't say that I remember the second half because I was literally at that point, like I just, why am I here? But God Emperor reads like he was just making things up to put on a page. Get to this point where it's dark and it reads like someone under heavy pressure is giving under yeah. the into their yeah. their worst impulses. Yeah, I was just reading about this yesterday. He did. He I think he died under ta- uh, still owing the IRS. A ta- he died a tax dodger. He had moved to like some remote part of Hawaii where he Ooh. thought they like would have trouble tracking. Looks like down. the kind of tax dodger who is uh, claiming to do it out of principle. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. It was uh, his whole like. He was like this libertarian. He, if there's like a theme in Dune, right? I think this has been said before. It's just that government is bad. Yes. Like government will create empire. It will oppress. It is bad. It is also inevitable. Like he has this weird. Like it's not like he doesn't have this utopian alternative vision where you can create like anarcho syndicalism in the desert. It's always just empire is always there. It's always oppressing. It's always bad. I'm going to go to Hawaii and not pay my taxes. Like that was part of like his whole. Right. Because one of the whole things that is sort of a through line, even in terms of like the Paul part of the story is that the Fremen did have a utopian plan and the entrance of the white savior fucks up their multi-generation plan to make things better. It did not involve eugenics on like everyone else's plans. Right. Right. Their plan was just, like we're going to put water here and it's going to be a livable place and everybody else was like you can't have water because we need the, the you to suffer there 
so that we can get the spice to continue our other eugenics plans so we can cross space and time. Right. It didn't. This is right. why I say it doesn't hang together. Now, do I think that the first part could be better presented on screen? Yes. Zendaya is acting down to her toes. I like the fact that Zendaya has something where she gets to act. I think that without Zendaya as a carrying factor in the subsequent stuff, I'm not sure those young fans you were talking about will still be there, right? Like ones of the like, will they, won't they, how is that relationship going to go part goes away. He has such obvious chemistry with Timothy Chalamet that it's it, even just watching them stand next to each other for photo shoots, I'm just sort of like, those are the two most beautiful people I've ever seen. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think that's driving a lot of this too. <laughs> yeah, I think um, we should wrap up this episode. Uh, a question that's been recurring in the chat, or at least one that I saw, or some speculation I saw, was uh, if Frank Herbert were alive today and on Twitter, what would his persona be? What what type of guy would he be? Um, oh my god! My... I can hardly imagine. <laughs> it would be chaotic. It, it would have the same vibes as that. What's that metal guy who went to jail for killing his bandmate? That's on Twitter now. Oh uh, god! Death. Kebler knows this. Is it his name Death? Yeah, uh, it was like one of the guys from Death, oh, Vard, right? Like they, those guys that he's got a like a Scandinavian name because he was also one of those metal bands where they burned down churches. Anyway, oh, he's burned. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it would feel a lot like that instead, except instead of showing up to tell people that they should play his incredibly racist uh, tabletop game that's based on pagan history, it would be him being like, please play my Dune expansion where I get into how women are the root of all evil. Or like, so, sign up for my sub stack. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. he's got a whole a thing that you don't have to see in this part. He's got a whole thing with women and their uteruses and using them. Um, and that they shouldn't be in control of them. So I feel like he would be very much someone that Twitter would end up banning a lot. Yes. Like a lot of platforms would end up being like, no, okay, no. you got to go again. Like Stefan gotta... Molnow or what, that guy who tweeted about yes, yes. Taylor Swift's yes. eggs. Yes. Where he was like, you, people with uteruses should have to use them for the child, the host. He kept calling people with uteruses hosts. Very absolutely end up on Rumble doing like MRA videos. Yeah. And, and he would be like one of those TikTok, like remember the guy that got on TikTok and then he was like the star of the up on him day, the really short dude who kept talking about how he was a dominant Forgot oh, the yeah. name. Yeah, I remember him. I, that flat, that was a flash of the van. Yeah, I forgot. About right, that. he was like five feet tall. I can't talk about. I'm not submissive. I'm dominant. And I was like, but I can't. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> that dude has are bigger than yours. Shh. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I think. I think that's like, a good place uh, to leave it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Gita. So. Gita. No, no. Okay. We'll we'll end it. You're you're coming back. Um. So this is our first uh, motherboard does Dune. We are going to be back on Monday. Is it Monday, Brian? Yep, Monday. With same who? time. We have uh, Claire Evans and uh, Jacob Bacharach, who is a, uh, a Dune Dune critic, and we're going to be talking about oil and ecology in Dune. So, yeah, I am uh, Jason Kebler, editor-in-chief of Motherboard. I have Brian Merchant here, uh, Mickey Kendall, author of Hood Feminism. Thank you for coming, Mickey. Uh, Edward Angueso Jr., Gita Jackson, 
and Tim Marchman. This is uh, the most people we've ever had on a podcast at one time. So um, thank you so much for coming. Um, Going to have our, our new music play us out, but thanks everyone. And we'll be back uh, Monday. And thank you everyone who listened. Yeah, I know. This is spooky music, huh? Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.